By the way, some of y'all may be wondering what the theme of the retreat is. It's going to be uh, focused on apologetics. So, um, well, I think four sessions while we're there uh, focused on apologetics, equipping you, dealing with some big issues like what is truth and how can we know what truth is, um, tackling some issues of uh, origin of the universe, where did we all get here, how do we uh, know where we come from, reliability of the Bible, things like that. So that's what we'll be dealing with on this uh, upcoming bridge retreat. would encourage you uh, to sign up, not just for my benefit, but for Kelly's benefit, because she's been working so hard on this retreat to get everything together. And you guys will bless her if you sign up tonight for that retreat. So, um, yes, sign up for it. And as you guys know, I tell you this all the time. If you're sitting out there going, Pastor PJ, I want to go on the retreat. I just don't know if I can afford it. Uh, that's not a reason not to go. We will make it work, whatever that looks like. So let us know. Let me know. Uh, let your leader know, and we will work with you on that. Uh, back in 1992, at the Olympics, which were held in Barcelona, uh, which is, by the way, in Spain, in case you were wondering, um, there's a, an Olympic runner whose name was Derek Redman. And uh, maybe you don't know the name Derek Redman, because you were, how many of you were not even around or even a thought in 1992? Most of you in the room. Yeah, okay. Um, well, I remember watching this with my dad, and uh, the reason why it strikes such a, a, a memorable uh, occurrence in my mind is, uh, Derek Redmond was a, a sprinter and uh, actually was running the, the 400 in this particular race. I don't know if that qualifies as sprinting because I don't know track and field, but he was running 400 meters. And as he took off, he immediately pulled up lame and reached back. And what had happened is he tore his hamstring. You can imagine just the pain, uh, not just the physical pain of tearing the hamstring, but here you've got a guy who had given his life to try to make the Olympics had put everything into this one moment. And he was there. He was in front of the crowds. It was, this was the scene. This was the moment. And he was doing what he had wanted to do. And he, the, the gun fires, and he, he takes out of the starting blocks. And along the way, he tears his hamstring. Well, he wanted to finish the race. And so he began to limp towards the finish line. And you can imagine with a torn hamstring, that's not too easy to do. The other competitors in the race had left him far behind. Uh, this was no longer about meddling. This was no longer about setting any records. This was just simply about the fact that he wanted to, to do what he came to do. He wanted to complete the race. Well, Derek Redman had a fan in the stands that day, uh, and his fan was his dad. And his dad saw what happened to his son and knew that this was not something he was going to be able to recover from and saw his son limping along the track trying to get to the finish line. And so his dad uh, came down out of the stands, and this is a picture of his dad coming up behind him. Uh, his dad came up behind him and uh, put his son's arm around him to, to take the weight off of his injured leg, and his dad helped him finish the race. So one of the most stirring moments in sports that I can ever remember watching, that I can ever remember seeing, this moment of, of seeing a father's love for his son and seeing this familial bond there that drove him to leave the stands and to go down on the track and to say, okay, son, I'm here and I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you finish what you came to do. Our passage tonight is a call to arms for us to do the same thing with each other when it comes not to a physical, literal race that we're running, but to the spiritual race that we're running. That when we find that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who pull up lame in this race, who are beset with weakness from time to time in the race, that we don't just lap them, that we don't just run by them and look over our shoulder and say, uh, sorry about it, but 
hopefully you make it to the finish line. But that we stop down and recognize that they need help and that we as their brothers and sisters in Christ, their family who love them, help them to make sure that when we finish the race, we finish the race together. Hebrews chapter 12, picking up in verse 12, we'll read down through verse 17. It says this, Therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessings, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears." Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. The, the passage opens with two Old Testament quotes. The first one is from Isaiah chapter 35, verses 3 through 4, which you see up there on the screen. It says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong and fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And so this is the prophet saying to the people of Israel, hey, when, when you are fearful over what God is, is proclaiming to you is going to happen, Remind them that, that, that God is going to be faithful to his own. Strengthen those among you who are weak. Strengthen those among you who are anxious about what is coming. And remind them that they will be okay if they are following the Lord in all of this. And then the second quote comes from Proverbs 4, 26 through 27, from the, the Septuagint, which is what LXX means up there, 70. It says, make straight paths for your feet and make your ways straight. Do not turn away to the right or to the left, but avert your foot from the way of evil. That's what our author is referring to here in verse 12. Lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees. Verse 13, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of place or out of joint, but rather healed. He's quoting from the Old Testament, something that the, uh, the, the recipients of this letter would have been very familiar with, these passages, reminding them that they had an obligation to one another. Because this is not about, hey, individually strengthen your own weak hands and, and your own feeble knees. This is not about make your path straight as an individual, but this is corporately. As you look around at the, the people with you, the people running this race together with you, help them when they need help. The author, if you haven't picked up on it already, is going back to Hebrews chapter 12 and continuing the race metaphor that he began there in verse 1 where he says, let us also lay aside every weight which, and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is before us. So the author's going back there now and while the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, verse one and two, you could argue, although you could make the, argue, the argument the other way as well, you could argue that Hebrews 12, one and two was, was really about us as individuals running the race that God has set before us as, as individuals. And yet here now, the focus is not on the individual, but on us as a, a group, as a body of believers. And so he says, when he opens here in the passage, strengthen your weak knees and weak hands and clear the path. This is not about you, but this is about us. This is about you looking out for your family, looking out for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, when you see someone pull up lame, that you don't just lap them and leave them behind, but that you stop down and you help them and you love them and you invest time to make sure that they are able to recover and what is weak is able to be strengthened so that they can get back in the race alongside you. This thing that we do called Christianity is not an individual pursuit. Christianity, being a part of the church, is not an individual sport. It's a team sport. 
We are all part of this together. There's no such thing as an isolated rogue Christian who just hangs out by himself and does whatever he wants to do. That's why when, when people say, well, I don't really want to be a part of the local church because I'm part of the church universal. That's just a cop out because you're afraid to actually get involved and do what God's calling you to do by loving other people. But you also miss, miss out on the blessings of being loved by others in turn. And that's what this passage is beginning to talk about. Running this race is sometimes going to leave all of us at some point in time broken down, lame, weak, like he's talking about here. All of us are going to need someone to, to strengthen us. All of us are going to need somebody to, to clear the path in front of us, to make it a little bit easier for us for a time so that we can fully recover. And that's the first thing that we have to recognize about this is being a part of Christ, is being a part of the body of Christ, being a part of the local church, being a part of running this race, not just as an individual, but running this race together. Point number one, realize that. Realize we're in this race together. You have co-laborers alongside you. Not people that are competitors, not somebody that you're racing against, but people racing with you, trying to motivate you, trying to get you towards the end. And we want to make sure that together as a group, we are finishing this race together, that we're not leaving anyone behind. If you've ever had a, a trainer or a coach, maybe, trying to motivate you, uh, you understand that that's a huge part of their job, right? Like when they're like, when you've given 100%, give 110%. You're like, that's, that's not a thing. I can't do that, right? Or when they're like, when your body says no, your brain should say yes. And it's like, but I like no better at this moment, right? Or when they're like, don't let Putin win, finish the, the bike ride. It's like, what does that have to do with anything here? I, what are you talking about anymore? But they're what? They're trying to motivate you. They're trying to get you to, to realize that, that you have to finish, right? I always love when they say, if you can sing along to this song, you need to give me a little bit more. I'm like, I, I'm not singing. And so, no, I'm not going to give you any more. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Well, this opening, y'all, is the author being that coach, being that trainer in our lives. Saying, hey, look around you. You've got teammates that need your help. You're in this with them. You're in this to build them up, to strengthen them, to help them run the race together with us. And so lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Drooping hands and weak knees were signs of fatigue. And they were dangerous indications that somebody might be failing in their race. And so the charge here, the call here is for us to look out for our weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. First Thess 5, 14 says this, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. You're talking about this verse when you get into small groups, but this is a depiction of the church right here. There are people in the church who are weak. There are people in the church who are idle. There are people in the church who are faint-hearted, and we are called to be involved and to love them. And listen, y'all, I get that sometimes that is hard. I understand that there are difficult people to love in the church and that I am a difficult person to love in the church. I fully understand and recognize that, right? But that's not an excuse for us. In spite of the fact that it is difficult sometimes to love people, we are called to still love one another. You don't have an, an option to opt out of your family and be like, yeah, I'm out. I, I don't want to love that person. I don't want to care about that person. Like your sibling can annoy you to death, but they are still going to be your brother and sister biologically for the rest of your life. Like you can't divorce your brother or sister. You may want to, but you can't, right? You've got to love them in spite of this. Well, y'all, we are spiritually united together as a family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we have an obligation to make sure that all of us are running the race well. 
and that none of us are pulling up lame, that none of us are weakening, that none of us are showing the signs of fatigue that would imply that maybe we're not going to finish, that maybe we are going to fall by the wayside. We got to care about each other enough. And so let me ask you some questions. How well do you really know the true spiritual condition of people in this room? I mean, you know they show up to church. Maybe you've heard their testimony. Maybe you've sat in the same small group room with them for one, two, three, four, some of you, seven years. It's time for you to move on to Alliance, right? You know some things about them, but do you really know where they're at spiritually? Have you taken time to get under the hood with them to make sure that you know when they're going to pull up lame or when they're struggling to, to run the race? Do I have to do that with everybody in the room? No, you're not going to be able to do that with everybody in the room. But you should have two, three, four, five people maybe in your life that you can do that with and people who are doing that with you, right? Forget the room. How about your best friend? How well do you really know the true spiritual condition of your best friend? Or is that something that's kind of off limits for you guys? Like you love to hang out together, but man, don't take it too spiritual. Because that's just going to make things weird. Like do, you, do you know the doubts, the anxieties that your friend has over their relationship with the Lord? Do you know the sins that they, they struggle with? Does anybody know that about you? Again, guys, we're not called to compartmentalize ourselves and throw on these facades, these masks, and show up and be like, hey, everything's great, and this is awesome. The reason that God saves us and puts us in a family is so that we can trust, on, trust in and rely on each other. You say, well, Pastor PJ, I've gotten burned in the past by people who have betrayed me. I'm sorry that happened to you, but that doesn't mean that that's a reason for you not to trust and lean into other people from this point forward. God's put you into a company of believers who want to love you, who want to care for you, who want to build you up, who want to support you, right? He's given you a small group leader who wants to do all those things. Are you availing yourself to that? Do you really know other people in this group? And does anyone really know you in this group? Well enough to know when you might be struggling. Are you helping them stay the course? Maybe you say, yeah, I, I know. I feel like I do know. Well, what are you doing to help them? How are you making sure that they're keeping pace? How are you making sure that they're not pulling up lame? Are you helping them remain faithful to the, the task at hand? Just to grow in our relationship and our love for Jesus. Are you a positive influence in their life to, to push them forward towards that? Are you using your words, your text to spur them on, right? To be those sanctified irritants in their lives to make them love Jesus more. You know, that's what we're here to do with each other and for each other. That's what it means to lift drooping hands. When he says your, it's you plural in the, the text there. So he's talking to the church. He's saying anybody among you who has drooping hands or weak knees, you who are stronger, encourage them, build them up, strengthen them. So that what? So that they can run the race with you. And then it says, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. If someone rolls an ankle, right, out on a course, I'm sure you've done that, maybe playing basketball or running or whatever, or just walking down the stairs if you're old like me, um, and then you just think that the world's over after that, because you're like, I rolled an ankle, and it's the worst pain I've ever experienced, and childbirth has nothing on what I'm experiencing right now. <laughs> no, if you, you roll an ankle, a, a good teammate, right, if you're running with somebody, is going to go out in front of you and make sure that there's no debris in your way, because they don't want you to trip and fall and hurt yourself more, because you're already hurting, right? They're going to clear the path so that 
it's straight so that it's open. And that's what straight means there. There's no, uh, there's no obstacles in the way. If you're out on the track and you roll an ankle, a good teammate's not going to be like, oh, hey, let me put some hurdles in your way and let's see if you can make it over the hurdles with a rolled ankle. You're a jerk. Will you stop that? I don't need hurdles right now. I need you to pull those off the track so that I can do this without tripping and hurting myself more. And so what do we need to do? We need to make sure that with one another, we are clearing the path for each other. And so what does that look like practically for you? Well, if you know a brother or sister who's weak in a particular area, who is struggling with a particular sin, get out in front of them to help them by clearing the way so that as much as it is within your power, you can help them battle that sin and not be led into that sin. Some examples here. Gossip. If you know you've got a friend who battles gossip, who struggles with gossip, and you are sitting there and, and that friend walks up and you're talking with somebody and that person begins to gossip, the other person, not your friend, but the other person, shut that conversation down before it gets anywhere. Love your friend enough to, to put an end to that, to change the topic of conversation or just to call it out and say, hey, let's, let's not do this. Let's not gossip about this person right now. Get out and clear the path for them. Maybe you've got a friend who's battling lust. When you agree to be their accountability partner, man, be that great Dane, right? Get in their face and don't let them go. Get all up in their kitchen and in their grill and be somebody who, who's going to ask them the hard, awkward questions and make sure that you are going to see through the, the facade answer there. Do what you can to, to help them, to, to clear the path for them so that their running is a little bit easier. If you've got somebody who's just paralyzed by fear and anxiety, Right, Part of, of this is you know those things because you know them, like we talked about already. You know them well enough to know what they're afraid of, what they're anxious about. Well, get out in front of them and, and clear the path by praying for them, praying for the things that make them anxious, praying for the fears that they have. Pray with them so that they are prompted themselves to pray for these things as well. Get out in front of them and, and clear the path. Maybe you've got a friend who's caught up in pride. Well, when you see that friend begin to boast, it's, it's a loving thing for you to do. It's clearing the path for you to call them out on their spiritual blind spots where maybe they're, they're boasting and they need to be called on that so that they don't continue to, to do that. This is what it looks like to, to clear the path in order that what may happen. Well, it says there, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint. In other words, so that it doesn't get even worse than it already is so that they don't go further off course than they already have with this injury. But you want to give them the, the chance for that injury to heal, and that's what it says there, but that they might be healed. Now, we need to talk about that because I don't want you to hear that word healed from the mindset of whatever century we're in right now. Is it the 21st still? Is that what we're in? Yes? North-South? We haven't done North, South, East, West in a little while. Okay, 21st century, yeah. In, in this whole self-care, I need to step out of life. I need to back away from my responsibilities and just focus on myself and heal for a little bit. That mumbo-jumbo garbage needs to be tossed in the, in the dumpster and lit on fire with a blowtorch, okay? It needs to be nuked and, and it has no place, okay? It just needs to be obliterated. We need to take that garbage and, and there's a particular sex in the room that I'm talking to about this, right? The sheologians in the room that want to talk all about how I need to heal and get in touch with my, my inner self, and, and then I'll jump back into it. Let's put that aside, okay? That's not what we're talking about here. This healing is an act of healing of still pursuing the Lord. It's still being obedient to the Lord. It's staying in the race. It's strengthening yourself so that you can keep running after Jesus. There's no benches on the sideline for Christians to just sit down and rest so that they can self-care and heal before they get back in the race. Did the author really intend for him to talk about all that right now? No, he didn't because this nonsense wasn't there at this time. But it is now. 
And I just want to guard against us misunderstanding what he means here when he says, so that what is put out of, what is lame might not be put out of joint, but rather healed. He's not talking about, I just need some space to be able to heal before I can get back in the race. Talk to Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. His resume of earthly suffering. He's been stoned. He's been beaten. He's been whipped five times. 39 times each of those five times. Shipwrecked a night and a day. Betrayed by friends. Hymenaeus, right? Alexander the coppersmith. These people leaving him, betraying him. And not once did Paul say, you know what, I just need a little, I need to, I need to step out for a minute so I can heal emotionally from what's going on. No, it's time to put on our big boy underpants, big girl underpants, and realize that, yes, this life is hard. Duh. We're aliens and strangers in this world. And it's going to be hard for the rest of your life. Newsflash. And you have a race to run. And the good news is you get to run it with people who love you and are going to help you in that race. Who is that? It's the people that are sitting in this room with you. It's the people that you're going to meet 10 years from now, 15 years from now, in another church maybe, or back in this church still. Maybe some of you still in alliance, moving on to, to get together, full steam ahead, right? And you are going to be living with people who love you and care about you and are going to push you forward to love Jesus. And that's the good news here, y'all. That is the good news with all of this. And so we are all going to have moments where we are weak, where we pull up lame, where we are beset with a sin. And we need to have brothers and sisters in Christ who know us well enough to call us out on that and then to clear the path for us to help us stay in the race so that we can keep going. Why? Because we all want to finish together. And this race is a long one, but it's one that we are all in together. He keeps going. If I haven't offended everybody in the room yet, I'm sure I will by the end of this sermon. So just stick with me. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. And he's, now what he's doing is he's transitioning away from the race metaphor and he's giving us some practical instruction on how we should be helping one another. What this help should look like. How we should be caring about each other in our lives and as we run this race. And so point number two tonight is this. Genuinely care for this body. Realize that we're all in it together, yes, but then after you've realized that and come to understand that, which hopefully is, is pretty rudimentary, the next step is making sure that you really do love people in this room, that you really do care genuinely about this body. And where do I start on that? Start with your small group, that you do genuinely care for people in your small group. And so as he unpacks the, this practical application of what this should look like to help people in verses 14 through 17, he's going to hit on three key areas of, of how this looks and what this should look like, our genuine care for others. The first is, is peace. The second is sanctification. And the third is purity. And so let's start first with, with peace. What should that look like in the body of Christ? Strive for peace with everyone. And don't you wish he didn't say with everyone? I wish he just said with the people that you get along with that, that are easy to love, with the people that never sin against you, be at peace with them. No, he says strive for peace with everyone. In fact, in this passage, in the Greek, the, the word peace is in the emphatic position. It's at the beginning of the sentence. Peace, peace, peace. I'm speaking Greek up here now. Peace, strive for it with everyone. 
He's emphasizing that what he wants you to realize is that a, a mark of a body that genuinely cares for each other, that's helping each other, that's strengthening these, these drooping hands and weak knees, it, it's marked by peace, okay? Peace. What, what is peace? What does that look like? Well, it's a common biblical theme, isn't it? Matthew 5, 9, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. Romans 12, 18, Paul instructs us to live peaceably with everyone. Mark 9, 50, be at peace, Jesus says, with one another. And so if we're going to help each other out, then we need to be at peace. We need to be a group that's characterized by peace. Well, that's one thing to say, but it's a different thing to live out. What should it look like? Uh, turn over to Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. Colossians is going to be to the left in your Bibles. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, God's Electric Power Company there, GEPC. So Colossians chapter 3, let's look at what peace looks like in the church or read about what peace looks like in the church. Paul says this, but now you must also put them all away. Now let's back up. He's talked about if you've been raised with Christ, verse 1, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So he's already established the, the, the if part of this. If you are a Christian, he's saying, this is what should follow. This is what should characterize your life. And he goes into verse 8. He says, but now you must put them all away. Notice how these things are antithetical to peace. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all in in all. In other words, he's saying put away your factions, your groups, your cliques, your, your, your parties that you want to identify by and say, well, we're this and not that. He says that, that's, that's nothing. We are all one in Christ. Christ is our foundational identity. Verse 12, put on then, instead as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's a picture of peace at work in the body of Christ. Putting off all those things that are antithetical to peace, anger, wrath, malice, slander, lying, deception, right? Putting on the things that promote peace compassionate hearts, kindness, love for one another, forgiveness, patience with each other. And so if we are going to be a group marked by peace, it means that we can provide no quarter for these things. Uh, first is, is factions. Like I said, our fundamental foundational identity is that we are in Christ. We belong to Christ. That if you are in the room and you are a believer in Jesus, you are a new creation in Christ. And so there are no factions. There's no groups. There's no cliques. There's no uh, divisions that can come up here. There can't be someone that you see walking up to you and, and you turn and walk the other way because you just, you can't even with them right now. 
There can't be somebody that, that you have this air of superiority over thinking that you're somehow better than them, right? There's no room for that in the body of Christ. That is not something that strives for peace with everyone. Second, there, there can't be distance from other believers in the body of Christ. You know, some of y'all are here and you show up and that's great. And I'm glad that you're here and I want you to keep coming. But some of you are here and you have kept every single person in this room at, at full arm's length. And I'm not talking my arms, I'm talking Pastor Kellen's arms. Like you've got full on wingspan going on and you are stiff arming everybody in the room who wants to get close to you. And you won't let your guard down, right? Or there's others of you in the room who are keeping a different kind of distance. Maybe you've got your close circle of friends, but if a friend starts to share too much or depend on you too much to help them, or they start to open up too much to you about stuff that is gonna cause you to have to get in the trenches and get messy with them, that's when the stiff arm comes out and you go, yeah, 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 I'm not, I, I don't really wanna get there or go there with you. Yo, we are a family. There's, there's nothing that's, that, that we can tap out and opt out of in this group. We need to be willing to love each other well that way. The third thing that we can't do in this group, if we're going to strive for peace with each other, is obvious. We can't be sinning against each other. Yo, we can't be people who are slandering other people in this group. There can't be any gossip about somebody in this group. No mockery of, over someone in this group. We can't be lying to one another in this group, deceiving one another in this group. And certainly, there can be no sexual immorality committed against each other in this group. Sexual immorality, is that sinning against someone? What if it's consensual, which our culture is so big on right now, as if that makes it okay? 1 Thessalonians 4.6, 1 Thessalonians 4.6, hear what the Apostle Paul says here. He's talking in the context of what God's will is for your life. He said this already. He says, this is the will of God in your life, your sanctification. And then he clarified. He says, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality, that you know how to discipline your body in sanctification and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And then he goes on to say this in verse 6. He says that no one transgress and wrong his brother or sister in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. And so look, you can look at me and say, but, but Pastor PJ, we love each other and we're going to get married. Here's the deal. If you're having sex before marriage, you are sinning against each other and you are sinning against God. And Paul in 1 Thess 4 just told you blatantly and plainly that God is the avenger in this. Can't be doing that. We can't be sinning against each other. Fourth, we can't be holding grudges against each other. Somebody's metaphorically stepped on your toes in this group and you've friends off. You've done the whole Dwight Schrute thing. Shun, unshun, reshun, unshun, reshun. There's no room for that, right? Forgiveness, do you guys know how many times in the Bible forgiveness is directly connected to your saved condition? It's somewhat frightening, especially if you're holding a grudge against someone refusing to forgive them. Matthew 18, 35, Jesus says, after talking about the wicked servant who wouldn't forgive his fellow servant who owed him a pittance compared to what the king had forgiven him, Matthew 18, 35 says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The context there is you're gonna be thrown into eternal damnation 
if you refuse to forgive your brother. Luke 17, 4, Jesus says, and if he sins against you seven times in the day, in one day, sins against you seven times and turns to you seven times that day saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You must forgive him, Jesus says. Ephesians 4.32, Paul says that we are to be people who are forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave us. We have to forgive as we've been forgiven. Colossians 3.13, I read it a moment ago. As the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. And so y'all, if we are to be a group that is striving for peace, we must be people who are forgiving others who have sinned against us. Because if you hold the grudge, here is in effect what you are saying. And this is why this is such a serious issue and why it's connected to salvation. Because if you hold a grudge, what you are saying is, okay, God, I understand you might be willing to forgive that person's sin against you, but that person's sin against me is too great for me to ever forgive them. Do you see how that is a slap in the face to God? That out of a bitterness in your heart towards a person, you would dare Suppose that the offense against you is bigger than the offense against a holy and infinitely righteous God who's willing to forgive them. You know, by the way, he's forgiven you. And so we cannot be people who hold grudges. And then finally, we cannot be impatient. We cannot be impatient with each other. 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient, right? And that's written to a church. It's not written to two people getting married. It bugs me that that's like the wedding passage. Now, it's not the wedding passage. Paul's writing to the church at Corinth is what he's writing to in that letter. He's not writing to Bob and Sue who are getting ready to get married. I don't know why those were the names that came up. I don't think we've got a Bob and Sue in the room. That's why I just threw them out there. He's not writing to them. He's writing to the church body saying, hey, church, listen up. You want to know what love is? Love is patient to start with. So we must be people of patience if we're going to be at peace. Ephesians 4, 2, we have to bear with one another in love. That word bearing with someone is to be patient with them. You've got a brother or sister in Christ who's not where you want them to be spiritually, theologically, doctrinally. Be patient with them. Lovingly come alongside them. Help them to get to where they, you feel like maybe they need to be. You've got a brother or sister in Christ who's battling a sin and they're not making the progress you want to see from them, don't write them off. Be patient with them. Bear with them in love. Colossians 3.13, same thing. We are to be bearing with one another. And then that verse that I referenced earlier tonight, 1 Thess 5.14, when it says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. He says at the end there, be patient with them all. Be patient with them all. Again, our goal in all of this is to what? get the whole group across the finish line. So to do that, we have to be striving for peace first. Second thing we have to be striving for is sanctification. Sanctification, right? We need to be, as believers, we have an obligation to be godly individuals, right? Godly people ourselves. Again, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you would be somebody who is holy, who is godly. 1 Peter 1, 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Right? We have an obligation as believers to be growing as believers in our holiness, in our godliness. Our direction, though, albeit it won't be perfection, our direction should be towards Jesus, being more like Jesus, which means we will be battling sin on a regular basis. So we have an obligation as individuals to be pursuing godliness. Well, y'all, guess what? As believers, we have an obligation to help each other also be godly people. 
We have an obligation to one another in our state with one another as to whether or not they are growing in godliness. Paul writes this in Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Paul says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know, we need to be doing that in this church, in this group. Matt Chandler was once asked if his church practices church discipline, and he said yes, and any healthy church should be practicing church discipline on a regular basis. So that doesn't sound healthy. Well, he's not talking about getting to the final stage where somebody's kicked out of the church. He's talking about the initial stages, which is what Galatians 6.1 is talking about here, of caring enough about your brothers and sisters in Christ that you are going to have an awkward, hard conversation to say, hey, you said this, or you did this, or I saw this post on Instagram where you were wearing this or said this or made this comment or whatever, and I just want you to know that, that it, it came across this way or that this is where you have been wrong and this is not okay. What you're doing is, is sinful here. You know, if, if we would learn to say, hey, what you are doing is sinful, we would be a much more loving group than we are. Because to turn a blind eye to it for the sake of not having an awkward, hard conversation or the first, for the sake of you're afraid that they're going to reject you, that's not loving. Letting your brother or sister persist in sin, potentially Romans 2, 5, storing up wrath for themselves on the day of judgment if they're not in Christ, which is the whole point of, of church discipline, right? It's that whole process is to make sure that, that somebody really is in Christ. And the point is not to kick somebody out. We never want to get there. The point is always to see them reconciled to the Lord. And sometimes that's going to involve seeing that they aren't truly in Christ to begin with. But it starts by saying, hey, you are, what you are doing is sinful. And you need to repent from what you're doing. That is a loving thing to do. Something that we should be about doing here more than we are in this church. In this group. Because we're afraid of what someone will think of me if I call them out on their sin, if I tell them that what they're doing is wrong. I mean, look back in the passage that we're studying. We're in that second part of verse 14. Strive also for holiness. And what does it say after that? Without we, which no one will see the Lord. Do you feel the weight of that? Your brothers and sisters in this room who you know have ongoing sin in their life and they're not bothered by it, do you feel the weight of the fact that they may be going to hell where they sit tonight? And you're sitting there going, but at least I'm comfortable because I don't have to have an awkward conversation. First Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 says from the Apostle Paul, do you not know that the unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God? This is in the context of what I'm talking about. Because Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, hey, church, you got a problem. He said, you've got a guy there who's sleeping with his father's wife, and that's wrong. That's gross and disgusting, and it's a sin against God, and he's not okay with it. And you, church, you know what you're doing? You're patting yourselves on the back. You're boasting that you're so welcoming and tolerant that you don't want to make this guy feel awkward, or you don't want to be legalistic and judgmental and actually call sin, sin. So you're boasting in your tolerance of this person who's sinning and needs to be called on it. He says he needs to be put out of the church. He needs to be delivered over so that he might come to his senses. 
And then in that same context, he says this, do you not know? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves. By the way, can I just make a sidebar culturally here? What that means is homosexuality. And it's not just limited to men. I was talking to my wife earlier today. We were talking about our church plant coming up. It's not going to be hard for us to be different because what we're going to do is we're going to preach the Bible and the culture is bailing on the Bible left and right on issues like this. Hear me clearly. Homosexuality is a sin and it is wrong and it's an abomination to God. Well, Pastor PJ, isn't cheating on your wife a sin? Yes, it's a sin. It's wrong and it's an abomination to God. Well, what about lying and stealing? Yes. What's your point? Nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, none of them, he says, are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Do you feel the weight of that? Do you feel the weight of that? Y'all, I hope everyone in this room has that common objective, that common desire to make sure that everyone in this room is going to cross the finish line. And if we're going to do that, we've got to care enough about each other, and sanctification is a key part of that process. It's a huge part of that process. That we need to care for the, the holiness and the godliness of each other so that we get across the line. Hear what I'm saying, though. I'm not saying that you finishing the, the race is based on your good works. If you are in Christ, you are going to finish the race. But if you are in Christ, you're going to be running the race with brothers and sisters who are going to help you finish the race along the way. Okay? Look at verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no bitterness, no root of bitterness springs up that causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. He's hearkening back to Deuteronomy 29, 18 here when he talks about root of bitterness. This is not somebody who's bitter at life. No, he's talking about a poisonous root that infects the whole here. He says in Deuteronomy 29, 18, he says, Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. So he's worried about a, a, a source getting into the group, getting into the hole that's going to spread through everything. He's saying, watch out for that. Beware, be on guard against that bitter root, that root of bitterness. Paul said something similar back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Again, in that context of confronting sin, he said, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so guys, care about this group, genuinely love one another enough to want to root sin out when sin's in the group because it can have destructive consequences. The overall health of the church is not just the job of the leadership. It's everybody's responsibility. So we've talked about how do we do this. We've, we've talked about the, the peace. We've talked about the sanctification. And then finally, he turns to purity here. He turns to purity here in verse 16 when he says that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. You may wonder the connection here, right? Sexual immorality in Esau. And you're going, I remember the story of Esau. 
and he was a hairy dude. And I remember the whole, like, his dad smelled Jacob, and that was weird. Um, and he put animal skins on his arms. And I always read that story, and I'm like, really? He was fooled by this? But apparently he was. But nowhere in that story are we reading anything about sexual immorality. And so what's the connection here? Why does the author talk about sexual immorality and Esau? Okay, well, think about what Esau did. He came in from hunting. You remember the context? And what, what was his state at that point? He was hungry. Yes, we're remembering this. Okay. Famished. So he had a fleshly desire that was impulsive, that was consuming him, that was all he could think about. And his brother said, well, I've got some stew here that I'm willing to give you if you sell me your birthright. And you remember what Esau said? He goes, what is my birthright to me? Give me the stew. I'm hungry. I want it. That fleshly appetite. And what he sacrificed, he could never get back. Because look at verse 17. It says, for you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, the birthright, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You remember, he went back to his dad and he's pleading with him. Do you have a blessing for me? Give me a blessing. Give me a blessing. And his dad's like, sorry, I can't give you the, the blessing of the firstborn. It's already been done. And so his impetuousness, right? His, his spur of the moment being governed by and ruled by his fleshly desires cost him so much. That's the connection to sexual immorality here. Because y'all, sexual sin is impetuous like Esau's decision to sell his birthright. It's the offspring of the heat of the moment. You give in to those desires. It's unthinking sin. It sacrifices future reward on the altar of the immediate. And my guess is those of you in the room that have gone down that road have dealt with the feelings of guilt and remorse and shame and condemnation afterwards. Y'all, we're going to address this subject in greater detail in a few weeks. I'm sure you're excited about that. I'm not going to tell you when because I want you to show up. <laughs> but Bridge, let me just tell you, let me just be honest with you, Okay that I am well aware that this is an area where Satan has a major foothold in this group. I'm not just talking about having sex with another person. I'm talking about your individual sexual purity on top of that as well. And it's dangerous. And that's what our author's talking about here. And here's the, the, the current circumstances. It's like you have covert assassins that are sitting at tables among us, taking out peers, taking out people left and right, and you guys all know that they're there, and you commiserate together about how much of a bummer it is that, that all of them are there, but no one's standing up and doing anything about it. Here's the deal, y'all. If you are aware of unconfessed sexual sin in this group, and you aren't doing anything about it, you are failing at your job, to love one another. You're not helping your brothers and sisters lift their drooping hands and strengthen their knees. And you will be held accountable for that. Again, the impulsiveness, the sacrifice. You'll care about each other to make sure that that's not going to happen. It's that genuine care for the body here. 
that we would be a body that's marked by peace, that we would be a body that's marked by sanctification, that we would be a body that's marked by purity. Some of y'all are like, dude, he's only on point two. I've only got two points tonight. So just breathe. Take a deep breath. Take a deep breath. But here's the deal, y'all. This is where we're at tonight. There are people in this room who are lame currently. Wow, I came to church and my pastor called me lame. Physically, spiritually lame. Not socially lame, spiritually lame. There are people that need to be supported, that need to be helped. And you've got a, a choice to make right now because all of you are on the track, just like this guy coming up behind him. So the question in the, in the gauntlet that's been thrown down by our author in this passage is, are you willing to slow up and stop down yourself to render help where help is needed? Or are you going to keep right on running right by this guy and blow by him and think, well, somebody else will get to him. It's not my problem. That's the decision that needs to be made. Let's pray. Got heavy stuff, but Lord, so much encouraging as well when we think about the reality that in Christ you have placed us into a body of believers, that in Christ you have not left us by ourselves, that in Christ that you have not put us in a situation where we're alone in this, that we're not running this race solo. All of us in this room at time need people to come around and help us to run the race, to lift our drooping hands, to strengthen our weak knees, to clear the path in front of us. So Lord, I pray that you would continue to provide those faithful brothers and sisters, that this group would be marked by that, this genuine care and concern, that we would love each other enough to call sin, sin, that we would love each other enough to push each other to, to, to obedience in following after Jesus. That we would care enough, Lord, and that in turn we would be cared for in the same way. So Lord, please, please make us that type of a group so that we will all reach the finish line together. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.